the end of the chapter, verse 23, as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. Verse 20, or verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is neither good, or it is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. And then verse 1 of chapter 15. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your word, which reveals unto us your will for our salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the reading and preaching of it by your spirit, for without you we can do nothing. I can't preach, I can't speak, and we can't hear, we can't understand, we can't put it into practice. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would do it well, and that you would be glorified as a result. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Perhaps you know that chapter 14 of Paul's letter to the Romans is often uh, summarized as the chapter on Christian liberty. And it is that. Paul deals with this topic of Christian liberty. And uh, the reason he does that is because of what was happening at the church there in Rome. You know, sometimes when Christians come together, they have uh, secondary beliefs upon which they disagree and probably more than that, they have practices about which they disagree. And so Christians come together, and uh, one Christian does one thing, the other doesn't do it. And so then there's this question, why doesn't he or she do that, or why is he or she doing that? And that was happening at the church in Rome. And in our day and time, it's a, it's a little difficult to apply uh, this passage to our modern-day context, but it can be done. And I hope that we will do that as we work through the rest of the chapter today. And as I thought about that, I thought of, you know, celebrating holy days, or we call them holidays. You know, do we celebrate Christmas or not? Do we celebrate this day or not? And some do, some don't. And, uh, well, 
Christians disagree? Or what are your thoughts about COVID? You know, when we go back a year and a half or so ago and think about when it first erupted and came out into uh, the news, um, we were unsure, unsettled, and then we started to form opinions, and some have this opinion and that opinion, and what do you do? And well, maybe our opinions have changed over the past year or so, but that could be and has been a difficult and divisive issue, even amongst Christians. And so here in Paul's letter, he gives directives to Christians when they do disagree about secondary issues. We uh, should note, again, that Paul here is not talking about a sinful issue. It's never okay, it's never right to sin against God. In fact, Jesus tells us to pray that the Lord, our Heavenly Father, would keep us from evil. We're to flee temptation, all of that. And it's also clear that the gospel is not at stake. He talks about celebrating certain days. He talks about drinking wine. He talks about whether or not we should eat meat and that sort of thing. And this might go back to the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws. That could have been a source here. Could have been that there were the Jewish Christians here, early Jewish Christians. And while they did not think that you had to observe the ceremonial, ceremonial law to be saved, they still evidently had a hard time shaking off that ceremonial law, if that is indeed the context historically. And so you can imagine going back generations, generations and generations, your, your mother, your father, your grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents, they didn't eat meat, they didn't eat this food, they could only eat this, they had the kosher diet. And all of a sudden, Christ comes, he fulfills the ceremonial law. God says, do not call unclean what I've called clean, as he said to Peter in the book of Acts. You may eat, so we can eat steak and shrimp and oysters. And some people look at a snail and say, I want to eat that. To which I say, well, if you put enough, enough garlic butter on it, I'll eat it too. Uh, but the point is, they perhaps struggled with eating some of these foods, and they were like, no, we're not doing it. And it was an issue. But it wasn't a gospel issue. If that were the case in this context, this chapter would look very similar to Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says, if I or an angel comes to you from heaven and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. And so he deals with that. They were saying, you must be circumcised in order to be saved and so forth. And that's not the case here. It was a different difference in practice for sure, and it was uh, a sore spot. It could have been, if it wasn't at that time, a source of contention and division in the church. And so Paul talks about those who are stronger. He talks about those who are weaker. In verse 1, he says, receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And a little later, in chapter uh, 15, I think it is, yeah, in verse 1, he says then, or he says, we, includes himself, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Those who were, they were strong in the faith, some who were weaker in the faith. And so last time we looked at the first half of this chapter and we saw that Paul's directive there was that the strong were to receive the weaker, not for the purpose of putting them under scrutiny and, and condemning them, but to receive them, to bear up with them in their difference, to love them in that way. And he gave three reasons in verses 1 
through 12. Remember those? He said we are to receive those who are weaker in the faith. We are to receive one another as Christians. Why? Well, the first one is there in verse 3. He says, because God has received them. If God has received them, then why shouldn't we? Are we wiser than God? Are we holier than God? No. So God has received them. God has forgiven them. He's justified them by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're part of the family of God. They're part of your family, spiritually, the household of faith. Receive them. Second reason he gave was in verse 4. He says, well, God is the one who will judge that person, not you. So don't condemn them. Don't withhold fellowship from them because you differ in this area. Receive them as the brother or sister in Christ that they are. And then the third reason as to why uh, we are to receive one another, and in this context, the, the strong are to receive the weak in the faith, is because God alone is the Lord of the conscience. We saw that. He teaches that in verses 5 through 9. We, in verse 10, he says at the end, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we all individually will give an account to God as to how we uh, lived, what we think, what we've done in the flesh, in this life, even as Christians, not to be condemned on that day, but to be judged, to be declared openly and acknowledged as a child of the living God, and also to receive those gracious rewards at that day, and hopefully that we will hear the words, good and faithful servant. And so as we look at the rest of this chapter, beginning there in verse 13 through actually chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul, I think, begins to show what this looks like. He's given the principles, he's given the reason, the principle, the directive is receive one another. You who are strong, those of you who do eat meat, those of you who treat one day as every other day except for the Lord's day, those of you who are strong... Do not look down upon your weaker brother because he or she won't eat meat or they observe this day or that day, whether it's a Gentile practice or they're still kind of hanging on to that ceremonial law during this time of transition as Christ has recently come to them. And so that's the directive, receive one another. And so what does that look like? Or... What does it look like when we truly exercise our Christian liberty? You know, if you ever read our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, and you look at that chapter on Christian liberty, um, you will soon find that the liberty talked about there is not the liberty to sin. It's not the liberty to get away with as much as you want as a Christian. No, it's in fact that God has set you free from captivity to Satan, from captivity to his kingdom, and from captivity to sin. For Jesus says, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we've all had our exodus as children of God and been freed from the house of bondage. And we've come to Mount Sinai. God says, live this way. And so liberty involves that. We have the freedom to do what is right. And yet there are certain things that we may practice in the Christian life that God has not forbidden. But another Christian may look at that and stumble and say, how can that Christian be a Christian and do that? How can that Christian listen to that type of music? 
Now, let me tell you, there's all sorts of ungodly music we shouldn't feel. We shouldn't put the trash in our ears, right? But there's some that we can listen to, perhaps, and uh, there's better music. We can eat, eat the crumbs on the ground, or we can feast on psalms and the hymns of the faith and good Christian music. Or maybe it's something else. I joked and talked about essential oils. Maybe you use that, you believe in that, or maybe you don't. There's all sorts of things we could talk about. So what do we do? What will it look like? And so there are basically three areas I want to talk about this morning. First of all, if we receive one another, and in particular, if we who are stronger in the faith receive one who is weaker in the faith, first of all, we will apply the law of Christian love. That's in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge or condemn, look down upon one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. What is he talking about? A stumbling block. In order, I guess my mic's freaking out. Uh, in order to stumble, I think we just got turned off, didn't we? So when the Bible talks about a stumbling block, um, you have to understand that as Christians, we have a walk. The Bible itself talks about our Christian walk. You know, in Genesis 5, 24, it says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There was something special about Enoch, and that is that he walked with the living and true God. In Genesis 6, 9, it says that Noah walked with God. In Micah 6, 8, the question is posed to all of God's people. It says there, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And so as Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so we sometimes talk about our Christian walk. And by the way, if you want to be an encouragement, if you want to exhort your brother or sister in Christ, ask him, her that question. Well, how is your walk with the Lord? You know, we talk about sports, we talk about current events, politics, COVID, whatever it is. Let's talk a little bit, not that we don't, but let's talk a little bit about our walk with the Lord. We need to be reminded of that. And so when you think about it, um, we don't come into this world walking, do we? Uh, we learn how to crawl, then we learn how to walk, as some have recently in our midst. And um, we're, to we're toddlers at that age. There's a reason we're called toddlers. And um, we can fall. And if there's a block on the floor or a shoe, we may not see it very well if we're a toddler and we stumble over it and we fall. And so the point here is that the weaker Christian uh, is not fully grown, is in the process of growing, just as we all are in our sanctification. And so uh, we are not to put something in the way that will cause that person to fall. So when we walk with the Lord... As Amos 3.3 says, we are in agreement with the Lord. How can two walk together unless they are in agreement? 
And so if we're walking with the Lord, we're fellowshipping with Him. And, and we're seeking to do His will, His bidding. And so when a stumbling block is put in a Christian's way, that person falls down, stumbles, and that fellowship from walking is broken. Now, how does this work in the context that Paul speaks about here? Well, it goes like this. The, the stronger brother looks at the weaker brother. The weaker brother does not eat meat. And the stronger brother says, look, haven't you read the word of God? Christ came. He fulfilled that. Um, you can eat meat. Don't call unclean what God has called clean. Now here, take this filet and eat up. And that weaker brother or sister sitting there thinking, well, I don't know. I, you know, I still I'm having a problem with this. I, I don't think it's right. Or that thing's still moving. I'm not eating that. I don't think that. I think that's ungodly. You know, there is a food spectrum. There are certain there are things I won't eat. And there are things that I won't eat that other people eat. Do I condemn them for that? Well, it depends maybe on what it is. <laughs> but even so, um, you know, there is that parameter. Okay, cannibalism is wrong. It's ungodly. Um, and maybe there are certain things I think maybe we shouldn't eat. But the point is, there is that spectrum. And so that's what it looks like. The, the stronger person is trying to force the weaker person to eat when that weaker person thinks that it is sin. That's the issue. And so the question is, is that weaker person going to do it? In verse 14, Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. See, he's the stronger. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So Paul is not teaching relativism. He's not saying, well, there is a standard that is for you, and there is a standard that is for me. He's not talking about pragmatism or relativism or any of that. He's, he's saying this, that for the person who thinks it's unclean, in his mind, it is unclean to him. In his mind, he thinks he is going to sin against God if he eats. And so in verse 15... He says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So the question is, are we walking in love? Are we bearing up with our brother and sister when we do have a difference and remember, God has already accepted this brother and sister in Christ. And here he says, do not destroy. We'll talk more about that word destroy and what that means. Do not unravel and do not undo what God has done. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And here's the implication. Christ Jesus came and died for this person who won't eat the meat. He's working with this person. So if Christ was willing to deny himself, to lay down his life for this person, as he's going to go on to say, can't you just deny yourself a little food or a little drink for just a little bit? Christ was willing to die for this person. All I'm saying is give up a steak or a hamburger or whatever it is for a little while in the presence of this person. 
So the question is, who is our God? What is our God, you see? Are we willing to uh, destroy uh, the work of God because we have an idol? We can't just put it down. And so that's what this looks like. And again, some modern-day examples. I'm hesitant. It's interesting. Let me just say this. When you read the literature, I've listened to sermons on this passage uh, some, by some pastors and preachers you probably know of. Um, when you do that and you study the, the material out there, many are hesitant to even name a, a modern-day application because of fear that that might cause division. And then some give examples, modern-day examples, and I'm like, I don't, I don't see where he's coming from. So that just shows me that we are different. We're one in Christ. In many ways, we, we are very similar. We're all in, made in God's image, of course. But yeah, we're different. We're at different places in our sanctification, as, as the Bible teaches. And also, we have different preferences and customs as well. You might think today of musical style, as he'll go on to talk about the use of alcohol, um, whether or not we may touch it and drink it. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, in a sense, be drunk with the Spirit. Um, God gave wine, Psalm 127, that makes the heart merry. It is a blessing of God, and I could go off on a tangent there because I've obviously had to study this over the years. I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol and so forth, and, and we use real wine in the Lord's Supper. We have grape juice for those who, out of conscience sake, don't partake of it. But you have to realize that grape juice, as it is in that cup, is a modern invention. In the 19th century, there was a Christian dentist in Vineland, New Jersey, who during the temperance movement wanted a way to have the Lord's Supper more frequent and to have it without real wine. So a guy by the name, the last name of Welsh, um, invented the process by which he could remove alcohol from wine. Because you have to understand in some countries where it's hot and arid all the time, uh, the juice in the grape begins to ferment on the vine. And so during that process, it begins to ferment. Then when you store it, it's really going to ferment. And so that is a recent invention. And my point is, in the Bible, when Jesus turned water into wine, guess what? My guess is it was alcoholic wine. Because the same Greek word there in John 4 is the same Greek word in Ephesians 5 where it says, don't be drunk with it, with wine. And I'm not saying you should drink wine, okay? I would be violating this text. But if you want to, you're permitted by God. And so some of us do, some of us do not. If someone struggles with that, if they have a past where that has marred their life, wrecked their life, I could understand that someone sees that as cutting off their right hand and throwing it far from them, as Jesus says. And so how do we deal with that? Well, this text tells us here in one sense. Now, there are those who um, differ from my view on that, who say that, uh, well, we sh you know, you should drink wine or or come close to saying that. I should put it like that. Um, there's the Daniel diet. You know, maybe someone wants to do that. Um, I'm going to enjoy my meat, as I have recently. And so the point is that Paul is making is that for the weaker brother, 
if he sees this as wrong before God, we don't force that person to partake because that would violate his, his conscience. In other words, that person would then be willing to sin against God. That's the issue. And Jesus warns us in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believed in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depth of the sea. So there it is. There's the issue. And so for those who are stronger in the faith, those of us who are, we are to receive those who are weaker, and we will apply the law of love as we see here. Let me just pause, <clears throat> because Lord willing, we will grow more as a church if the Lord seems to sees fit for that, and, and we might have people come who are new Christians or who maybe have been a Christian for a while, but they haven't grown a lot. They will differ. They will have different understandings. And so we don't walk up to them and try to fix them in five minutes and let them know everything that we've learned over the past 20, 25 years. I mean, there's a process, right? I, I came from a fundamental background, and it was a long process of study and understanding and prayer, you know, those campfire conversations, all of that. And so we have to be loving and bear up with one another. And second, I think we see here in our text that if we receive our weaker brother or sister, we will avoid bringing a reproach on the church and thus the name of Christ. That's in verses 16 through 19. When we do this, when we receive one another without condemning, because we have a difference of opinion or practice, not about things that are sinful, when we do this, we avoid bringing reproach on the church and thus the name of Christ himself. Verse 16, he says, uh, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Again, this goes back to the division. Don't, don't do something that will cause your weaker brother to say that you are doing evil before God. And then in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying there? He's saying there are priorities with the Christian faith. There are priorities in the Christian life. And eating is not a priority. Yes, God feeds His children. We give thanks to God for our food. We should pray before we eat our food. And we rejoice in it. But the kingdom of God is about more than that. He says it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, in other words, Paul is telling us that if we refrain from these things at times, we are not sinning. We are not doing wrong. And so what hurt could it do for us to refrain from these things at certain times? As one says, if the spiritual well-being of others would just for a moment require our abstinence, we should abstain from it. And he says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is a sermon in itself. But he's talked about righteousness, right? That alien righteousness, Romans 3, that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, not that which we have earned or deserve, but we receive it by faith in the Lord Jesus, by the grace of God. 
And so by the grace of God, as we are forgiven, uh, we begin to walk in newness of life and begin to obey God and, and practice that righteousness. We are justified, we are forgiven, then we practice that process called sanctification, becoming holier, God cleans up our lives. There's righteousness, then he says here, uh, peace. And so Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've been forgiven by God, we are no longer at war with God. We are no longer at enmity with God, but we have peace through the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that produces peace in our lives. No longer having that gnawing conscience, but knowing that, yeah, we've committed the most heinous acts and sins against God, but the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all of our sins. And so we have that peace that passes all understanding. And he talks about joy in the Holy Spirit. All of these things in the Holy Spirit, by the means of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of Christ to us through the gospel, through the word of God. And the Holy Spirit produces that fruit of joy. Jesus says in John 13, my joy I give unto you. He says that to his disciples. And he says here that that joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom is about. We could say a lot more about the kingdom and its present um, existence. Uh, the kingdom of God is, is not necessarily future. It is future, but it's already, it already has been established. Christ came preaching the kingdom of God. He says, if I've cast out demons from among you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom of God in this sense is God's rule over us and in particular in our hearts. And so there in verse 18, he says, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So notice this um, when he says, for he who serves Christ in these things. He who applies these principles that the Apostle Paul has given. Remember, Paul is an apostle, a representative of Jesus. So the words in the Bible written by him are the words of Christ. This all is all the word of Christ. So if you apply this, you're serving not only your brother and sister, but greater, uh, you are serving Christ. And so how you treat another brother or sister in Christ to that degree is how you treat Christ himself. And so you serve Christ by serving others, and you serve Christ by um, regarding his wishes when it comes to that brother or sister with whom you have a difference of opinion or practice. And then he says there in verse 18, um, you're, if you do this, you're acceptable to God. You please God. This makes God, as it were, smile upon you. I used to wonder because I... I discovered, you know, the sinfulness of sin and all this. Is it possible for a child of God, is it possible that I can please God? Well, yes. It's kind of like parents when your children, I tell, I go back to this all the time, parents when your children, you tell them to clean up the room and they clean it up and they say, mommy, daddy, I'm done. And it's still kind of a mess, but they tried and they did it to please you. That's kind of like the child of God trying to please our heavenly father. Our best good works fall short of God's glory but he graciously received them. 
And so in that sense, our good works are acceptable. In this sense, when we apply this principle, it's acceptable. It's well-pleasing to God. And notice what he says, approved by men. There in verse 18, literally, that means judged worthy, that which is right, that which is caring and loving. So not only are we concerned about pleasing and serving Christ and serving God, but also here, that which is approved by men. Now, we are not enslaved to the opinions of men. If you're shy, if you're skittish, that's kind of how you are. You're, you're in servitude to the opinions of men. I've been there. I grew up doing that. The Lord's dealt with me, is dealing with me. I'm a work in progress too. And so there is a sense in which you have to say, well, I'm going to serve Christ and let the pieces fall where they may. But for the arrogant person who says, I'm going to do it, I don't care what they say, well, maybe you should. Because you're conduct, your words, your attitude are a reflection on the church of Jesus Christ and therefore for are a reflection on Christ himself. And so he talks about being approved of men in that way. Jesus said this in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the world recognize the church? By its love for one another. There should be this thought from those looking outside into the church. Yeah, they've got something there. See how they love one another. They have a diff- they differ, but they still love one another. And yet how many Christians part ways over the most petty issues? Things that are secondary, things that are way below the gospel and the clear teaching of Scripture. It ought not be that way. You know, maybe you're going to take the jab, as they call it, or maybe you have, or maybe you're not. Maybe you know of a family member, another Christian, who will or will not take the jab. How are you going to treat them? I've seen division over this. Mask wearing. It's petty. I disagree with some people on these issues. But by the grace of God, I don't let it separate my fellowship with them. How much more than the physical family ought it be to be in the family of God? The spiritual family. Well, then last we see here that if we're going to apply what Paul says here, if we're going to receive one another, especially if the stronger will receive the weak, we will exercise deference and discretion when it comes to such things in the church. That's in verses 19 through 15.1. We will exercise deference and discretion when it comes to such things in the church. Now, I've, I've qualified that. Such, such things, things that are not sinful, things that are not questionable, things that are not in that, if we want to call it a gray area, we will exercise deference. What do I mean by that? I mean that we will respect that other person's choice 
not to eat meat or not to do whatever. And when I say discretion, what do I mean? If we who are stronger, if we eat meat or whatever the thing is, we don't do it in their presence. Is that being hypocritical? No, it's an act of love. Why? Because we know in our heart of hearts God has approved of this. We know that we may and that we can do it to the glory of God. But in this situation, it causes the other brother or sister to stumble. And so he says in verse 19, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. That's what we are to be about. Not tearing one another down. Not cutting one another off at the knees with our tongues or our attitudes or our looks, but building one another up. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And he helped the apostle Paul to assimilate in the church. Paul who was Saul before he was converted. Saul who uh, gathered up Christians in order to arrest them before he was converted. It was the son of encouragement, the one who edified Barnabas who helped him to assimilate into the church. And here we're reminded that the church is an edifice. We are the temple of the living God. First Peter 2, we are living stones being built upon uh, one another so that we may offer spiritual sacrifices. First Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, we the church are the temple of God in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And we're to build one another up. You see, that's what God is doing. Christ said, I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Christ is about building up His church, and so too should we be about it. Not destroy, but having peace. In verse 20, he says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Well, what's he talking about? He's using that word destroy. Um, Well, the work of God is godliness and childlike faith faith in another person. The work of God is the work in that weaker person. And he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. I mean, if you're going to put them on the scale, food, um, the work of God, which one outweighs the other? Well, duh, the work of God, rescuing a person from hell, developing Christ-like godly character in that person. That is the more important thing. By the way, why is it, if you've been a Christian for some time, 10 years, 20 years, 30, 50, whatever, when you see a new person come to the faith, you might get a little giddy. You rejoice. You look at sort of the innocence and naivety of that person. They don't have a lot of knowledge. But you look at their desire to follow Christ. That's what it is. They want to follow their Savior. Because that's what it's about, right? Jesus. We look at that. And we're reminded, oh, there was a time when I was like that. I didn't know a lot. But I wanted to follow Christ. And now I have this book under my belt. I have this doctrine under my belt. I have 30 years of being in this church under my belt. Jesus says, if you've got all your doctrine down, but you've left your first love, repent and return. 
go back, as he says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. And so that's the issue. He says, do not destroy, verse 20, the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. He's talking about the stronger. And so verse 21, he says there, um, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. That's the principle. We could put it like this. Just because we have the right to exercise our liberty, it does not follow that we should at all times. Um, Verse 21, notice the word if. If or by which your brother stumbles or is made weak. Verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. What does he mean? I think he means if you have the faith to eat the meat, to drink the wine, and it's going to be very divisive for you to do so in the presence of that weaker brother or sister, do it before God outside of their presence. By the way, um, just because I know of human nature and I know of party spirits, um, not speaking about us here, but just sinful nature. Be careful that if you are trying to apply this, you don't have a party spirit. Like you're the, the ones that drink wine. So you're going to have a party and exclude people that don't drink wine. Or you have a party like that, and that's the only type of party you have. Or fellowship, if you want to call it that. Or the other way around. So we have to be careful not to be divisive in that way. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he, verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. If you have doubt about it, that means you don't have faith that it is pleasing to God. And whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. The Christian life is a life of faith. If Adam trusted God's word, if Eve had trusted God's word, they would have believed him, of course, and obeyed. But they didn't. They doubted. Satan sowed the seed of doubt. Has God said, God did not say, well, he knows you're missing out. Here, eat. Okay. Well, the Christian life is about trusting God at his word. You know, maybe you you know that God is sovereign, You know that God oversees the affairs of men. He is providential, and you struggle with it. Okay, so I need that job, or I want that spouse. I really wish the economy would come back and I could put a down payment on a house or whatever it is. Do you trust God to provide for you what it is you need in your life? So whatever is not a faith, is sin. That's an important principle he lays down for this whole discussion. And so then verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, is that what it's about? Was that what this was about back then? Was it about pleasing self? I want the meat. 
I want the wine, and I don't care what effect it has on my brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to do it anyway. Glory to please God. By the way, does this sound familiar? I dare not preach this without bringing in the Savior. In Philippians 2, there was division in the church. And in Philippians 2 there, Paul addresses that church and he says in verse 5, Let this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So have the same attitude as Jesus. Who? Well, what is his attitude, Paul? Who, being in the form of God, that means he's God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. And even as such, being God, he did not consider it, Paul says here, robbery or something to be held onto. but made himself of no reputation. Or it could be put, he emptied himself of his privileges. What's the point? Jesus could have said, no, I'm not going down there. I'm not going to live that life in that place, and I'm not going to lay my life down for them. I'm God after all. I have a say in this too. It was his right. But he emptied himself. He denied himself, as Paul says, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as men, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so, in other words, if we're going to do this, like our Savior, we have to deny ourselves and defer to our brother or sister in Christ, even though we may lawfully partake of what it is we want to partake of in that context. And to do this is to express your love for your brother or sister. And it is to acknowledge and appreciate your work for the, or to appreciate the work that the Lord is doing in that individual. Let's pray.